What does life look like through the eyes of someone who places no value on it? How do you prosecute a criminal with a death sentence when death is what they want? And since I'm on such fun topics, what's the point of being alive? To ask a more focused question, what does nihilism look like in modern small town China? Well, as a former policeman from Jiangxi province, I.E. might have some of the answers to these questions. I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to episode 10, Di Shuji, the translated Chinese fiction podcast. Okay, so a few disclaimers. Number one, so as I've said on previous episodes, my flat is right in James Court, which is like tourist central of Edinburgh. So there might be points in this episode where you hear some guy giving a guided tour and his big booming Scottish voice. If you hear that, ah, I apologize, but just consider it local flavor because this is, after all, a Scottish podcast about China. Second disclaimer, um, I apologize that it's taken so long to get this episode out, but I've been awfully busy. I've been working on my dissertation. I'm studying publishing, a master's in publishing. My dissertation is on translated Chinese science fiction. More about that in a minute. Uh, Suffice to say, I've been absolutely itching to get to release this. And finally, time has allowed it. I think I'd hinted on Twitter that we'd have the translator of the book we're covering today, Anna Holmwood, on the show. She's a bit busy. She should hopefully be on a future episode, perhaps about one of her other books um, or her work. We shall see. But for today, it's just me. So the plugs. If you'd like to support the show, um, here's one way you can do it. You can become a monthly contributor on Patreon. I'm going to be adding two new little bonus shows to there after this episode. One's going to be about one of our author's short stories, and one's going to be just me talking a little bit more about the details of my dissertation research for anyone who's curious or wants to know some of the things I've studied and found out. Um, The other way you can support the show financially is on Buy Me A Coffee and that's a one-off contribution rather than the monthly ones that Patreon does and there's no bonus, there's no rewards for you but but it is um, a way to just make it a one-off payment that you never have to worry about monthly outgoings from your bank account again. So it's got that going for it. There's also the SoundCloud too, of course, our host. Um, Spread the word. Tell your aunties, tell your neighbours, tell your parole officer, tell the owner of the hotel that you're hiding in. Tell your dog, tell everybody. Spread the word about the show, please, please, please. Um, You can also keep up with me and the show on the show's Instagram account, trchfic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. You can follow me on Twitter, Angus Likes Words. And there's my not-podcast Instagram. (laughs) Why not follow it? Um, and of course, reach out to the show by whatever means, any way you can get a message to me. Please do. I would love to talk. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So today's show is on The Perfect Crime by IE. It was translated by Anna Holmwood. It was published by One World, and the translation was funded by a grant from English Pen. And it was originally published in Chinese in 2012 by the Zhejiang Literary and Arts Press, and it's published in English in 2014, just two years later, so fairly speedily, I think, in the grand scheme of Chinese to English translation, at least based on what I've seen in my kind of nosying around. I would have called it studies, but that's a bit self-aggrandizing. I think nosying around is more accurate. So uh, this book had two Chinese names. Um, I believe the first name was Xiamian Wokaigan Xieshema. Sorry if I got the tones wrong. And the name that it finally arrived at was Mao He Lao Shu. Bit easier to read if you've got basic Chinese like me. That means cat and mouse. Now, the first name 
Now, there was a little nugget of interesting info I uncovered here, and I had to do a little bit of googling around on paperrepublic.org to find out what this first name for the book, Shamian Wagaigan Shiashama, means. Um, I could kind of see from looking, it was something like, what should I do next? Next, what should I do? So I was looking online, and I read that this name was a reference to the opening of Clockwork Orange. So I typed Start of Clockwork Orange into YouTube, because I'd forgotten how the movie started. And I got the opening clip of Clockwork Orange, but weirdly enough, uh, that clip opened with Chinese subs from the, or like a little watermark from the Chinese website it had been downloaded from. Just a strange coincidence. But the, the joke was on me, because that that line is not from the start of the film, it's from the start of the book. The original English version, the line is, what's it going to be then, eh? That's my attempt at um, Clockwork Orange Cockney. The translation of what's it going to be then, eh, is, in, in the Chinese edition of the book, xiamian wo gai gan xie shen me. What, what, what's it going to be? What's up next? So that's, that's that fascinating story for you. Hope you enjoyed that. So the Clockwork Orange reference is kind of pertinent because this book at its heart is about this kind of psychopathic, sociopathic, disassociated young man, a little bit like the Drukes and whatnot from Clockwork Orange. But Cat and Mouse is maybe, it's a little less on the nose or a little less obscure, I suppose, um, because the idea of the chase between the criminal and the story and the authorities isn't like a crime caper chase, but it's th- it's actually thematically quite key. We'll, we'll get into why. Um, before we do, um, there's quite a lot of things I'm going to talk about. Uh, a little bit more background to me and this book and how I got it. So around November, just last year, um, myself and all the family members were asking each other, what do you want for Christmas? Because um, no one takes risks anymore and guesses what each other wants for Christmas. Uh, so I, I told my various family members who asked, I'd like some translated Chinese fiction, please. Thinking that they could just kind of Amazon it, take it from there and give me a surprise. But um, that was over optimistic on my part. I kind of was like told, just name a book, please. So one of the books I named was The Perfect Crime. And I chose it based on its cover because it's got an incredibly bold, red, gray, white and black cover. And it's got the word crime on it. It reminded me of some Soviet crime kind of paperbacky light fiction that I'd seen in bookshops in years past. And I thought, oh, cool. So this is like a piece of Chinese genre fiction. This is crime, um, perhaps with a little bit of edge to it based on the blurb, which hinted it might be a little bit kind of dark and existential. So I thought, perfect. We'll get more onto how this book isn't really a standard crime book, but yeah, it, it stands out from a lot of other translated Chinese books in that way, even the more modern ones or the more kind of edgy ones, let's say, the Liomang ones. If you remember the term Liomang from previous episodes means hooligan. We'll, we'll talk more about that too. So first, a quick summary of the plot. I am going to spoil the plot, so skip ahead a wee bit if you don't want to know what happens. I'm not going to go into like every detail, but I'm going to give you the broad strokes of the whole story, so be warned. So the story is told in first person by a young man who's just finishing high school. His tale lasts 210 pages. Can you, can you tell I'm reading this off of something I've typed up? I think you can. So this tale lasts 210 pages, and you can split it into about three parts. Three acts, if you will. So in the first 56 pages, our narrator plans his crime and he picks his female classmate, Kong Jie, as his victim. And she's basically the only person who's ever showed him any kind of 
affection and she's a very innocent young girl and he seems to have a wee bit of a crush on her that's the impression we get i don't know if it's outright stated i should say it's been a little while since i read this book i just gobbled it up straight after christmas so i had a little cursory glance over to refresh my memory but um it's not as fresh in my mind as some of the other books i've talked about anywho um so there's a very upsetting scene where our narrator invites Kong Jia into the home where he lives, his auntie's house, and he stabs her to death in a really disturbing manner, let's say. And he stuffs her body in his auntie's washing machine. Yes, he does. And then in the next 57 pages, which is kind of like your second act, he acts out the escape that he's planned. He leaves a false trail, and then he lies low in a couple of different provincial nowhere towns, kind of in the same sort of nowhere that he was living in himself. And after a while, the kind of the loneliness and the boredom catch up to him. I think he has a couple incidents where he almost gets caught, but he's basically got away with it. But he can't kind of get away from his own distaste for existence or inability to just mesh with people. So he tries to hang himself, but bystanders cut him down. And then he makes a phone call. And of course, it doesn't matter which country you're in, if you make a phone call, the authorities will find you. So he makes a phone call knowing what's going to happen and ununiformed police shows up. He sees that they're police because of their belts, but they don't recognize him. So then he just outright tells them, I killed Kong Jia. And after they beat him up, he says, I want a KFC. Nice. And in the final 95 pages, so this is about half the book, this final act, according to how I've divided it up. It's not, the book's not divided in, in this way. It's in chapters. Anyway, in the final 95 pages, the narrator goes through the justice system, uh, imprisonment, interrogation, media attention, which is really interestingly handled, the trial, a verdict, and his quote-unquote last words. So the second half of the novel is quite different from the first half. It's got less action, um, you know, moving around scenarios, meeting people, running away from the cops, and less sketching of these kind of nowhere small towns. And instead it gets a bit more interior, so we get some flashbacks to the narrator's past, we kind of go into his thoughts and his inner world and then we end in the courtroom and he gives a kind of a big speech on why he turned to murder and his game of cat and mouse to find some meaning or try and create some meaning in his life. Um, and if you've studied existentialism, when I say create meaning, that'll be setting off your little your existentialist alarm, you know, meaningless world in which you create your own meaning and so on. So... That's the plot of the book. Now a little bit about Ai. Uh, you might hear I'm also reading this from notes that I've written in full paragraphs. So if it sounds a bit robotic, that's why. So Ai, he was born in 1976 in Jiangxi province's Ruichang, which is a county town, i.e. a town in the sticks. Uh, Ai is a pen name. His real name is Ai Guozhu. Uh, apologies if I did not do the tones right. Oh, Facebook message. Um... Ai wanted to be a writer, but he got a low Gaokao score. Gaokao, if you don't know, that's the university entrance exams. And how you do in those tests basically determines what kind of uh, tertiary education you can get into. So his low score led him to join the police, which is what his dad wanted him to do um, from the start. And he didn't like the police much, so he went into the civil service, didn't like that much, went into literary journalism, felt he couldn't properly do the job perhaps because of the way literary, you know, the literary world is managed in China, perhaps, we don't know, or I don't know. Uh, then he, so after the literary journalism, he went on to be a sports journalist, 
And then finally after that, he became kind of like a pro full-time writer. So he was an editor of a really important magazine in terms of like modern literature in China and cultural exchange with the outside, that sounds a bit dramatic, the Western world uh, called Chotspa, or its Chinese name Tiannan. Uh, it was run by this really cool guy, Oning. It had some English translations too in a little kind of magazine within a magazine called Peregrine. So for a while, Ai was an editor of Chutzpah. Uh, then he became an editor of Tia Hulu, aka its English name Iron Gourd, which is a literary imprint, uh, so I guess book publishing rather than magazine publishing, of a Chinese publishing house called Shiron, which I have not investigated, but I think I will after this show, because um, it's got a bit of a different name from a lot of the other big state publishers. There's not a name, you know, it doesn't have peoples in it, doesn't have a province's name in it. So, Shiron. Uh, anyway, um, there is a really good article on SubChina. I, I still recommend SubChina. Such a good website with some really good podcasts. So, SubChina have got an article called Ai's Ambition and His Ruin. And it's got some great kind of insights uh, from interactions with Ai that I'm going to kind of quote and paraphrase from. And, and again, reading, reading from my notes somewhat robotically. So, I apologize. Quote starts here. It was on an ordinary night in the police office of a small town in Jiangxi province that Ai, then a 20-something police officer, saw the future. He was playing mahjong with the deputy chief, who was in his 30s, and the deputy, who was in his 40s, and a retired officer. As happens in mahjong, when it, tame, when it came time to change seats, Ai rotated into the deputy's position, and the deputy moved into the chief's. It was in this way that Ai understood the life of a provincial clerk. If he stayed on course, he would follow the path of his supervisors, doing nothing but rotating until the end of this mediocre provincial life. Oh boy. So um, the fact that the end of life got mentioned there, I think that kind of betrays something about the Ai's tone in his fiction and perhaps what he's like as an individual. But yeah, um, nice little anecdote there about how Ai decided that the course, the local life his dad wanted for him wasn't the one for him. Next quote from the article. Most crimes are actually accidental, i.e. claims. So it's no wonder that he distances himself from the crime genre. Instead, the criminal motif is used to explain the behaviours of his characters, who are often taken from real life. A big fan of Kafka and Camus, i.e. willingly admits the influence of the stranger and takes on existential matters, such as the rootlessness of humans in society. I'm silently nodding. Yes, he does. Um, quote continues, It's not easy to write about contemporary China, Ai said. Crime is the lens through which he perceives and makes sense of the complicated time China is going through. His main objective seems to be trying to anchor China in this rootless time. So the word rootless there again. If I was an editor, I might say, Hoi, use a thesaurus. But um, Rootless does describe the main character of a perfect crime. So, good choice of word. Next quote. While working on his other novel, Wake Me Up at 9am, the intensity of his work became too much for Ai. He fell seriously ill and spent months in a hospital. After he recovered, he looked like a totally different person due to all his medication. His writing slowed down, and his recovery has been gradual ever since. During my interview with him, he talked for half an hour before he had to stop and rest. So I could make all kind of judgy um, assessments of what that says about Ai, but um, suffice to say, it seems like he's quite intense and full on, and again, kind of fits his uh, main character in this book. Although it sounds like 
I is maybe a bit more invested in things than this completely alienated main character. Next quote. On another occasion, Ai, another friend and I, were sitting in a car and chatting when, in the middle of the conversation, Ai took out a book and started reading. My friend and I were not surprised. Only after the conversation shifted back to literature did Ai lift his head and rejoin us. He's never put on pretenses of practicing social graces. So, kind of socially awkward, kind of obsessed with literature. Well, I think we can safely say he's chosen the right career. Okay, so that was Ai. Let's hear a little bit about the translator of this book, Anna Holmwood. So there were lots of things I didn't realise about Anna before I began reading up for this podcast. Um, the things I did not realise. Number one, she's a translator of Swedish to English as well as Chinese to English. I didn't know she was Swedish at all, but um, from what I've gathered, she had one Swedish parent and I think she grew up in Sweden. She certainly lived there for a lot of her life. Um, she's worked in Taiwan. Sweden and the UK. I believe in the UK she was in London, which would make sense. That's where almost all our publishing is. God damn it. Uh, she was editor-in-chief of the 2014 to 2015 Books from Taiwan project, where, as I understand it, she was writing, well, translating lots of excerpts for a big list of books that this uh, Taiwanese company or institution was trying to sell translation rights to to try and get its writers out there. And there's a big list of them on of her excerpts that she wrote up on the Paper Republic website. And I followed one of them. It was to a children's lit book about elephants. Yeah. So <laughs> the amazing things you can find on Paper Republic. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool resource. Uh, so she also co-founded the Emerging Translators Network in London. Exactly what it sounds like. The kind of a little society for people starting out in translation, not just Chinese to English, I think any kind of translation. These days, Anna is foreign rights manager for DKW, a literary agency in London. Now, there was one thing I did know about her before I started research for this episode, and that's that she's the translator of the first and I believe the third books of a really exciting new translated trilogy. It's Jin Yong's Legend of the Condor Heroes. And I've got a wee anecdote about that. Um, I met a fan of the show for the first time ever, um, Alex, who came to visit me from... Oh, no. <laughs> he was he was travelling in the UK, and when he was in Edinburgh, he stopped by to hang out with me for a bit. Uh, so Alex is Chinese. I showed him... I had a big stack of books that I'd been using for my dissertation, and I was like, have you heard of this one? Have you heard of this one? And I showed him the translated edition of the first Legend of the Condor Heroes book, A Hero Born. That's an Anna Homewood translation. I was like, do you know this guy? And he's like, mate, do you know Shakespeare? So Anna's working on something really big here in terms of getting a book into English that is very well beloved in China and uh, the Chinese, Chinese-speaking world. So shout out to that series. I'm sure we'll cover it on the show. I'll definitely try and talk to Anna about it on the show as well, because um, in my opinion, it's a very big deal. So that's Anna Homewood. Uh, next, let's talk about One World, the publisher of this um, translated edition. So broadly speaking, One World are a fairly highbrow non-fiction and literary fiction publisher. And, you know, given the name One World, it's maybe unsurprising that a large slice of their fiction that they publish is translated. So I had a look through their list of authors to see um, if there were any other Mandarin language authors like 
i.e. who they publish. And I only found one, actually. It was uh, Xiao Bai and his book, or his novel, I suppose, French Concession. I did find other Chinese names, but I believe they were all uh, diaspora Chinese people writing in English. So the only other translated Mandarin author on at least listed on the One World website as being one of their published authors is Xiaobai. He's up there with Ai. And I noticed it was mostly European names, maybe people writing in English, French, German, Spanish. Uh, just a wild guess there. Um, I wasn't on the lookout for any other particular nationalities or languages. I think I've talked about this enough. So that's One World. Now, English Pen, these were the guys that funded the translation of this book. So they're not publishers, but they've got spots on the kind of um, packaging of the book. Not on the outside, on the inside, let me see. Yes, on the um, the rights page with all the, um, you know, published on this date, the ISBN and whatnot. The English Pen and Arts Council are actually have more kind of visual presence on that page than One World, interestingly enough. So uh, who are English Pen? So the internals of the book on that copyrights page have a little paragraph on English Pen that I'll just read. English Pen exists to promote literature and our understanding of it, to uphold writers' freedoms around the world, to campaign against the persecution and imprisonment of writers for stating their views, and to promote the friendly cooperation of writers and the free exchange of ideas. Now, that sounds to me super political. Um, I do wonder if they put the same little blurb in books from countries that aren't China, um, like maybe France or something, because uh, it's all about it seems, it, or at least they're presenting themselves, I'm, I'm being a little bit over, overly critical here, so um, don't think I dislike English Pen or, I'm, or I dislike this blurb, but it's taking a very kind of anti-persecution angle, and i.e., to the best of my knowledge, is not a writer who's come under persecution. He doesn't really write about any topic sensitive enough to put him at risk of you know, imprisonment, heavy censorship, so I wonder if that paragraph creates a little confusion in thinking that English Pen needs to do something to protect Ai. I think he's a bit under-recognized in China, maybe because of the darkness of the topics he writes on, but I do not believe he's um, under any threat of persecution or... Anyway, I'm rambling. Um, so English Pen, they've helped to fund eight Chinese translations that I could find listed on their website. All look pretty like pretty good books, actually. Uh, one of them is the Chili Bean Paste Clan by Yan Ge. That's a book I've got and I'm hoping to cover on the show. I've read a wee bit of the start. Um, can't really justify finishing it because I've got other books to read. God damn it. Yes. So uh, English Pen, where does it get its funding from? Now, this is an interesting question because it gets its funding from several charitable organizations, but I, th I, I haven't seen who gives what shares, but the main listed funder in my book and on their website is the Arts Council England. So that's a uh, state funded by the UK government, um, specifically for England, I suppose. I guess maybe in Scotland we have uh, Creative Scotland. But yeah, that's government money helping to get books from other languages into English and into the English language book market. So a worthwhile cause, I suppose. I hope it doesn't get axed if we have another round of austerity cuts like the film, I believe. I think the British Film Council 
doesn't exist, or if it did, not in the form it used to because of cuts to things like the arts councils. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Now, enough about the publishers. Do I rate this book? Is it a good book? Well, absolutely. I love this book. Um, I raced through it. I read it barely after I'd received it. I think it was... Was it the first one I read from from my Christmas haul of books? I'm sounding awfully spoiled now. Big haul of books at Christmas. Um, if it wasn't the first one I read um, on Boxing Day, it was up there. I just powered through it. Uh, it's a really dark book, but it's not like kind of grandiose, the darkness of like a fantasy novel or something. It's really mundane. It's all the kind of grimy, distasteful parts of life painting a really horrible picture of existence that and also of course the crime that the novel starts off with the murder of Kongjie that's what makes it dark i've written here in my notes it's a it's an incredibly grim book while still being realistic it's critical of society without falling into like a political critique or a story of a heroic individual fighting against the state or an ideology or something it's much more existential than that and more kind of personal. The narrator, he's not a hero. He's quite pathetic for most of the time, aside from maybe his successful evasion of the authorities. But it kind of stresses it's more due to the authorities' ineptness than his cunning that he's able to do that. That's at least the character's own kind of thinking when he hands himself over to be caught. Um, yeah, I feel like this book can also it kind of teleport you into its setting it really immerses you in the kind of small town provincial setting that Ai's chosen the setting that he himself grew up in uh, but it doesn't feel like it's on a kind of mission to explain China or give you an insight into China um, which western publishers sometimes market books is doing and Xi Jinping even wants Chinese culture exported to do to tell China's story I think that's certainly not what's going on with this book um, the prose is damn good. It's tight and it's terse, but it has amazing turns of phrase. I think credit should go to Ai for putting together the ideas and to Anna Holmwood for translating them into English in a style that I'm guessing matches Ai's writing style in Chinese and certainly channels the kind of overall vibe of the book. If you'll pardon me using the word vibe, mercy on my soul. I'm not about the vibes. Yeah, so it's not a book for the faint of heart. It's chaotic. It's about the kind of meaningless randomness, the stupidity of the world, the kind of, think of all the stupid, wasted interactions we have day to day with people who are suspicious of us, who don't get what we're saying. Yeah, all of that stuff is packaged tightly in here. Is it another Leo Mang book? So if we think back to the books I've done on this show before, we had... Um, Murong Shui Sun's um, Leave Me Alone. We had Wang Shuo's Please Don't Call Me Human. So another kind of edgy book about a antisocial male. So the question I've asked myself is, do I have a type? Is this the kind of Chinese book I go for? Do Chinese authors have a type? Is this a kind of type of story that a certain type of male author who tends to get published in China types, uh, tends to tell? Or does Western publishing have a type? Is this the kind of books that Western publishers buy the rights for and translate? It ties in a wee bit to um, this concept I learned about reading some of um, Dylan Levi King, if you remember him from our episode, Dylan Levi King's blogs. He talks about this uh, concept that's 
used in Chinese discussions about society and literature called a Junan Ai. Don't know what the tones are. Junan Ai, which translates to like straight man cancer. You could call it toxic masculinity. It's this tendency for novels to have kind of vulgarity, sex, depraved or antisocial male characters, often rural settings, backwardness. So maybe there is a type in Chinese literary writing and then Western publishers, we do tend to, I said we, like I'm a publisher, um, Western publishers do tend to go for highfalutin literary work. Perhaps they go sometimes for edgier stuff. And I think I'm drawn to edgy stuff and it's cool to see edgy stuff coming from a country that's commonly misimagined in Western minds as like the old... Um, you know, old, an old Soviet country where everyone marches around, or, or or North Korea. China's not like that. It is pretty chaotic, just my opinion. But if you if if you go there, or if you've been there, you'll maybe know the kind of chaos I'm talking about. Yeah, enough said. So, next question: Is this a crime novel or is it an existential novel? I think I kind of raised this before when I was talking about the appeal of the book based on its cover and its name. So I'd say it's a fusion, maybe largely thanks to Ai's background. He's drawing on his real police experience. Supposedly some of his characters are based on individuals or characters he met during his police work. But I would say this is a really strongly existentialist work. It pretty directly asks existentialist questions, paints a kind of bleak, the world is meaningless, make your own meaning picture of the world. Which is French existentialism 101, right there. Um... The kind of plot of killing someone for no reason, that's a really strong callback to The Stranger, especially the structure of ending with a kind of absurd trial. The trial in The Perfect Crime is would qualify as an absurd, absurd, absurd? One of those kind of trials. There is an emphasis to like just the mundanity of life and the small things we do that reminded me of when I read Nausea by Sartre, or however you say his name. Really didn't like nausea, but um, I did kind of get that picture of how kind of icky and horrible and mundane your life is, especially if you're a writer with no meaningful employment. Sartre, you asshole. Um, the generally depressing picture of interactions between humans, the kind of grubbiness of it all, that reminded me a bit of the Kafka that I've read, um, The Metamorphosis, and I can't say read, it was an audiobook, but a bit of The Castle, just to kind of despair you can feel uh, in these lonely male protagonists not really knowing how to just deal with the people they meet i'm not i'm not projecting here guys honestly um and the the internal blurb it names these authors um let me just double check which ones it names the internal blurb names kafka camus and dostoevsky as well and when I noted it had Dostoevsky, I was like, yep, this reminds me of something he wrote. The only thing of his, I've read um, Notes from Underground. If you've read Notes from Underground, it's got one of the most sad, pathetic main characters ranting about how awful life is whilst being completely impotent himself. There's a little bit of, uh, a little, there's a fair bit of that in um, the main character of The Perfect Crime. So yeah, existential novel first crime novel in its packaging or its plot you might say um i've gonna i'm gonna go into the book and read you some little excerpts to give you some examples of just what i'm talking about and uh hopefully 
if the book's not for you, scare you off, and if the book is for you, entice you to spend some money and buy it. Right, so I've chosen this excerpt to demonstrate some of the mundanity depicted in this book. And this is where our main character is just trying to find a place to stay the night and hide out. I walked into the Benefit the People guest house bag in one hand. The place had originally been someone's private home and there was still an altar burning incense in the front room turned lobby. Bars blocked all the windows street level. The tiles on the floor were slippery and the blanket smelt foul. I wanted a room on the first floor. They noted down my fake ID, so I was from Beijing, and felt flattered. But when I wanted them to change the black and white TV, they slammed the door shut in my face. The screen was capable of broadcasting one white thread only. The curtains were ragged. The sheets were sallow. The pillows black and without pillowcases. A pair of flip-flops sat sadly on the bathroom floor, one of them broken. I snapped the bolt shut across the door and walked over to the window. I looked out on an empty courtyard in an endless sky. I had no idea why I was here, of all places. For the next few days I didn't leave the room except to go downstairs to eat. The kitchen was in the courtyard, surrounded by a low wall. One time, after I'd finished dinner, I smashed the shards of glass pressed into it. Then I positioned a ladder I found lying around under my window. I might have been taking precautions. Or maybe I was just bored. I took to sleeping excessive sleep and masturbation. I could recite the contents of the police poster on the wall by heart. 85 characters in total, including three exclamation marks. At one point I detected the stench of dead rat. I went looking for it and discovered a smelly sock soaking in washing detergent in the bathroom. I was like a noble animal disgusted by its own excrement and loneliness I had myself created. I started weaving together what remained of my life. I splashed the floor with water, mopped it, knelt down and went over it again with a cloth. Then I took a ball of shoe polish and shined my shoes, wrung out the cloth and buffed until I could see my own reflection by the moonlight in the leather. I had found happiness in labour, but the feeling passed just as quickly as I had found it. My body was telling me something, giving me an order. Go outside. Yeah, just a nice happy young man, you know. A nice cheerful guy. E, the next little excerpt I've chosen is further on in the novel after he's been caught and it's to kind of show his patheticness, his insecurity. Let me just find it. Bear with me guys. Oh boy. There we go. So he's being interrogated. Um, the cops want to find out why he killed this girl. I refuse to give an answer. Just as his fist was about to smash into my cheek, I caught a whiff of its meaty smell. My body shook and I began howling. My aunt! Because of my aunt! Your aunt? My aunt abused me. What's that got to do with the girl? I wanted her to know I'm not a pushover. His voice was raspy, fierce and uncontrolled, as if his vocal cords had been scraped against an iron file. Everyone else started laughing, their voices like flowers in a country meadow. My answer may have been amusing but at least it satisfied them. You could have killed your aunt. Why the girl? The prison officer asked. My aunt's strong. It was easier to kill the girl. The officer gestured to the others not to laugh. And to think I thought you might have been something. The others bent over, gasping strong, easier, jumping around in their laughter. This lasted for some time. I decided to take a lesson from my favourite Hong Kong films. It was all a matter of patience. I could spend years grinding down my toothbrush until it was sharp to sharp enough to murder them. Then I'd take them. 
one by one. And then he goes on to smash his piss bucket over one of the cops' heads, which is somewhat satisfying to read. But um, yeah, cheerful, cheerful boy, cheerful young man. Um, the next excerpt I'm going to read is part of his um, little speech at the end, his rant about why he did what he did. I think it gives a good indication of his mental state, his kind of inner logic, shall we say. So um, let me just find the start. Okay. So he's talking to the judge, explaining why he did what he did. I tried. I put everything into being an exceptional student. But those things are like water cast out in the desert. They evaporate quickly. Whenever I started something, I would picture its inevitable ending. An apple becomes pips in the trash. When everyone is making toasts during their feast, a cat paces in the kitchen waiting for scraps. Take love, fireworks exploding in the air. We're like impotent men trying to have sex. We're cheating ourselves. We want to believe the sky is lit up by the sparks of romantic connection when it's actually just black. Our lives are simply a long turn to old age and decrepitude until we can't even wipe our own arses. It's undignified. Then once we're dead, a dog along comes a dog one day, digs up our bones and plays with them. We're nothing more than decaying corpses. Yeah. I should note there's a bit earlier in the novel where we get a flashback to the main character watching his standing over his dad in his deathbed and his dad says something like he talks about the end of one's life where you, you, you there's no such thing as just your natural death you're just waiting for your organs to fail one by one to use his phrase and I was reading that and I was like damn that's dark and the thought does pop back into my head occasionally I think I think it's something I was writing the thing about organs failing pop back so if you don't want these dark thoughts infecting your head perhaps don't read the book um if you're down for it it's a fantastic book but yeah not a happy tale if you're looking for something that's a bit more of a standard crime novel so i haven't read anything but i do know um of the existence of some translations of what I understand to be more conventional Chinese crime novels. Uh, There's two different publishers who put them out. So Head of Zeus, they're the guys who do, outside of America, they do basically all the Chinese science fiction novels that exist, uh, at least all the new wave ones. Um, So anyway, Head of Zeus have a book called Death Notice by Zhou Hao Hui. You can investigate that. And then Amazon Crossing, who I studied as part of my dissertation, I looked up which books they had translated into Chinese. So just to give you the lowdown, Amazon Crossing have been going, I think, for about five years. And they are it's kind of a big project slash business extension where they're directly translating and publishing and selling books translated from all sorts of non-English languages into English, all from around the world, which is kind of a cool thing to do because um, English exports a lot more than it imports, so to speak. And they've got 19... Yes, I think they've got 19 Chinese books, and quite a few of them are crime novels, which is really interesting because genre fiction from China is so overshadowed by quote-unquote literary fiction. As I may have mentioned before, uh, I have in this episode, I might have talked about pardon me, I might have talked about that in other episodes. So, the Amazon Crossing crime books that I was able to, that I'm pretty sure they're all standard crime novels with um, a detective investigating an evil killer. They are Valley of Terror, also by Zhou Haohui. And then we've got A Devil's Mind by Gang Shui Yin. Maybe that's a pen name, because that seems to be all one word. 
And then we've got Murder in Dragon City by Qin Ming. And then we've got The Untouched Crime by Zijin Chen. So there you go. Um, crime novels from Amazon Crossing. Check them out if crime is your cup of tea and you want to see what Chinese crime fiction is like, I guess. So that's just about all I've got to say today. It's one of our shorter episodes, um, but I was just itching to put something out because it's been a while. Anywho, um, I do have a wee piece of academic reading that partners along with the topic today. I can't say I've read it all. It's a fairly dry academic study, but it's about um, inequality and crime rates in China with special attention to China's kind of biggest class divide, uh, urban and rural. The big cities and smaller towns, the coastal provinces and the inland provinces, um, which is kind of relevant to this book because um, this is... No, I don't think this is a rural book with a rural setting, but it's county level. It's kind of provincial. It would be interesting if you were to read this thing to see if it is an accurate description of the kind of crime you find there. It seems to have been during Ai's career anyway. So the link to that article will be in the show notes. So will links to the Patreon, to the Buy Me A Coffee, and then my Twitter handle and the show's Instagram handle will be in there too. Do send a message sharing your thoughts and do tell all your friends about the show that is the best thing you can do tell your parole officer tell your defense lawyer tell your cell inmates tell everybody and do remember the patreon's got two wee bonus shows that i'm going to be recording today one will be my thoughts on Ai's short story the curse and one will be a little spiel about what my dissertation is for anyone who's curious but yes, thank you so much for listening. I don't know when the next show will be because I'm still working on my dissertation. I'm moving back to Dundee quite soon, so busy times ahead. But I'll keep things ticking along on the show Instagram. If you want news, it'll all be there. Thank you so much for listening. Zai Jian. <laughs>